Fantastic. All right, I'm selling luggage this morning. So the sooner we get 500 pieces that sold, the sooner we can go home. How does everybody feel? We good? Who's in? A little show of hands, a little experiment this morning, a little audience participation. Audience, that's not the right word, a little congregational participation. You're not an audience, that's silliness. You got the big bag, got the small bag. How many of you, just show of hands, how many of you on a trip, you're taking this, this bad boy? This is all, you're about this one right here. All right. All right, fantastic. And how many of you are going to make the right choice and take this bag? So we're about 50-50, about 50-50. I'll tell you, we, my wife and I, when we went to Texas over um, Christmas break, had the worst airport experience of my life. I had two kids simultaneously throwing up while we were trying to check this bad boy at the counter. And it was this thing, by the way, you're halfway at the weight limit before anything's in it. <laughs> I don't even understand why they make a bag like this. Right, so we're halfway to the weight limit. We get to the counter, we put it on the scale. She goes, oh, I'm sorry, you're like seven pounds over. So I'm scrambling literally like underwears flying out of this thing. We're trying to figure out a way to get it put into other bags. My wife's got one kid over at the trash can. Ugh, another kid's going, I don't feel good. We're like, oh my goodness, kid, thir- kid three is screaming in the stroller, let me out. <laughs> Worst airport experience of all time. And it was due to this bag. Now, obviously, let me give you a couple reasons. I have just alluded to it in the story, but there's a couple reasons why the smaller bag is better. I want to make an argument for you, right? One, packing takes less time for the smaller bag, right? You have to eliminate things. You're like, no, that can't go. No, that can't go. No, that can't go. Everything goes in there, and it gets done fast. The second is it's lighter. It's lighter. This is a danger to everybody on the plane. You pack this thing full, that plane might go down. The third thing, I can carry it on. How many of you have gone to get your checked luggage and you watch all the luggage go around six different times because you're in denial that your luggage is lost and you do not want to go to that little office over there with the creepy people (laughs) that are going to tell you, yeah, it's lost and we'll deliver it to you sometime, probably never, (laughs) right? You carry that on, you don't have to worry about the baggage claim situation, right? So why don't we, why don't we take the smaller bag? I mean, if you you buy my argument, and half of you are probably like, I don't buy your argument because I saw your hands go up. But let's just say you buy my argument that this is by far the superior bag. There's so many reasons why this is a better bag. Why don't we, when we go traveling, take the smaller bag? Because we're worried that we will not have something we need, Right? The whole point of this is that I, there's nothing. I can pack everything I could possibly need and more, and I'll get to my destination, and there's no chance that I will ever at any point go, oh, I don't have that one thing that I knew I was going to need, and now I need it, and it's not there. That's why we take the big bag. It's because we're worried that we're going to forget something. But come on, friends. I mean, let's be honest. We can wear the same pair of jeans twice on the trip, right? Yeah, absolutely. And we can borrow a shirt from a friend when we get there. It'll be all right. I've got a buddy who refuses to travel with anything more than a backpack. And I know that when he comes to visit me, he will be wearing my clothes for the entire trip. (laughs) And his arms, he's a big muscled up dude. His arms are three of mine. All right, now I know I'm wearing the long sleeve, so you can't totally tell. 
but my arms aren't that big, right? And so my clothes fit me. They don't fit him. He wears them nonetheless. It's like squeezing into these things, but he doesn't care because he's wearing a backpack, right? That's what he's traveling with and nothing more. And so we're worried that we're going to forget something that we don't need. That's why we take the larger bag, right? I mean, let's, let's be honest. We can live without those things. Now, here's what I would say. Worry, worry has a way of making us think we need things that we don't actually need. Worry has a way of making us think we need things that we don't actually need. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 12 with me. And we're going to look at a story that Jesus tells about worry. Now remember, we've been going through Luke the last couple weeks and learning about different things that Jesus is teaching us as he's on the road to the cross. Remember in Luke chapter 9, at the end of that chapter, Luke says that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, which was Luke's way of saying that Jesus was now uh, intentionally moving towards his own death in Jerusalem, that he knew the cross was coming, and that he was going to intentionally move in that direction. So everything he says to his disciples in the book of Luke from that point forward becomes a very intentional lesson that Jesus is wanting to impart to them about what life is going to be like or what they're going to need to know for when he's gone. And so we saw in week one that Jesus really just gave them a practical opportunity to learn what it looked like to make more followers of his because he knew he was going to give them the commission, go and make disciples of all nations. And he said, you need to practice that. You need to get out there and do it, which is a great, by the way, example for us because we come Sunday after Sunday and we listen to words, right? And we talk a lot. I mean, we like to talk in the church, but Jesus at this point, right, in Luke, he says, we don't need to talk about this. We just need to go do it. You go and you, you get practice and you're not going to get it right the first time or the second time or the third time. You're going to experience hiccups, but you're also going to experience my power when you just engage with me on the mission that I'm about. You don't need super special training for that. You just need to go. And trust that I will empower you as you go. Right? So we saw that, his intentionality at teaching his disciples about what it looked like to make more disciples, more followers. And then last week, Nate talked to us about Jesus' intentionality to teach his disciples about what it meant to pray. What does it mean to call out to God, to have a, a regular, ongoing conversation with him, to both recognize our need of him, to call upon him, to be reminded that, Really what Robert Murray McShane says this, I read it this morning in my devotion time, that what a man is when he is in prayer is what he is, no more and no less. What a good reminder of a call to pray. That who we are when we go to pray, that, that's who we are. That's the ultimate measure of us. I think that's a good reminder. So this week now we come and he's taught us about making more followers and he's taught us about praying and the necessity of praying, and the delight of praying, and now he's going to come to a story that he's going to share with us about worry, and about fear, and about how worry tends to get in the way of traveling with him on the road that he's on. About how worry seems to be this thing that prevents us from doing the things that God wants us to do. And the great news is that Jesus is not just going to tell us about worry, he's going to give us some intentional instruction and just merciful instruction about how we might begin to stop worrying. Now I recognize as I say that, that some of you are maybe prone to worry in a pretty significant way. You find that worry, anxiety is sort of a, a regular pattern for you. And perhaps that's been the case for so long that you think to yourself there's no different way of living. And I, I want to argue that there is. And I want to argue that uncompassionately 
as if it's just easy and simple, right? Jesus' teaching about worry that he's about to give us is not meant to, for us to understand that, oh, it'll be so simple to overcome worry, but that it can be overcome. Do you get the difference between those two things? It's not simple to overcome it, but it can be overcome. There is a life that can be lived free from worry, free from anxiety. It's life on the road with Jesus. So let's talk about it a little bit. All right, Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 34, if you're there. If you're not, we've got it on the screen so you can follow along with us there. It says this, beginning in verse 22. And he said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet, God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Would you pray with me? So Father, we've read your word. I have tried to... Um, at least introduce this idea now that we're going to discuss worry that you bring forward for us and how worry is counter to living for the extension of your kingdom, for traveling well with you on the road that you're on. Father, we want to follow you. Jesus, we want to follow you. And so we need to be rid of worry. And so I pray specifically right now that you would begin to do a work in the lives, in all of our lives, that would rid us from worry. Help us to understand what worry is. Help us not to give in to it. Drive us towards the beliefs now that you so mercifully share with us in this text and so many others in your word that we would be so steeped in it, so saturated in it that we would find that our default is to run back to your promises and your truth, not to the places our minds tend to go when left unattended. Towards fear about the future, fear about what will come, and fear about whether we'll have enough or be enough or whether we'll be loved. Would you rid us of those fears and anxieties? We've just sung again and again of the ultimate act of your son on his cross, that he will hold us fast, never let us go, never leave us, never forsake us. So point us again to your cross, Lord Jesus. Point us again to your cross as the ultimate answer to all our fear, all our worry. I pray specifically, Lord Jesus, for my friends here today, who have yet to place their faith in you. They're examining you. 
you are so glad that they're here. We're so glad that they're here. I pray today that they would see in you and in your people a commitment to put away worry that would speak to the reality that outside of you we have great reason to fear and feel worry and anxiety, but inside of you there is no reason for fear, anxiety, or worry. So mark us with this kind of confidence. We pray it, Lord Jesus, in your name and for your sake. Amen. So let's answer a couple questions, and then I want to give you a couple insights from the text that I think are beliefs and, and then one action in specifically that Jesus gives us. So really, the crux of the sermon today is five beliefs and one action that help us get rid of worry, help us get rid of anxiety. But before we do that, we need to answer a pretty simple question, and that's what is worry, right? Uh, you might have in mind something different than what the text is talking about. So it's a relatively, I think, um, intuitive idea of worry. We've all felt it, right? Have you all felt worry? And you've all been in some scary circumstance, some difficult moment, and you felt worry. And so you know you felt it. It's sort of one of those things that we've, it's just common to the human experience. But there's a couple of things here that I think are important for us to understand when Jesus discusses this idea of worry. Because we may be prone to think that what Jesus is saying when he says, do not be anxious or do not worry, that he's giving us a command to never feel any concern about any difficult circumstance. That if we ever have a moment where we feel a sense of like, whew, like, this is going to be tough. This situation is scary. Uh, that somehow we've given in to worry. And I, I just want to say that that's not the case. I want to move us away from that definition of worry because that's an unhelpful definition. Because what it does is it sets an unrealistic bar for us in terms of what it means to obey the command. This is a command, right? Where Jesus says, don't, don't worry. And if we think that when Jesus says, don't worry, what he means is never feel any concern over difficult circumstances or never have a moment where you think, wow. I'm not sure how this is going to work out. If we never have those moments, I would say we're just not alive, really. I mean, we're just, we're, we're literally, I don't know a person that can do that. But when Jesus talks about worry, there are a couple things that are helpful for us in this text. The first thing is this. Now, it's not necessarily readily obvious, but when in the original language, Jesus says in verse 22, it says, and he says to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. That word anxious is a present tense Imperative. All right. Now, what that means is this. I know it's a little technical language, okay, but it's important because here's what that means. Because it's present tense imperative, what Jesus is saying is that this is not to be an ongoing regular habit for you. When he says, do not be anxious, he doesn't mean don't ever feel trepidation. Don't ever feel a moment, feel a moment of fear. He says, don't allow worry, anxiety to be your default setting to be the thing that you habitually go back to. That's what Jesus is saying. And they would have known that when they listened to him say that. When he says, don't be anxious, they recognize he's talking about a regular pattern in life where you go back again and again to uh, essentially unbelief that God will rescue you or deliver you. Uh, you operate out of the assumption that all is not going to be well, that all is not going to be okay. And that's what Jesus is really getting at when he's talking about anxiety there. So... The second thing that we probably should notice is this. He gives us a category. He says, don't worry about, what were the two things did you notice that he talked about not worrying about in this text? So don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. Okay, those are two pretty basic things, right? And so essentially, if he's saying to us, don't worry about your food, don't worry about your clothing, what he's saying is essentially don't worry about anything. If you're not going to worry about these very basic necessities of life, then you know, if you don't worry about food and clothing, then you probably shouldn't worry about your 401k. Probably shouldn't worry about the state of geopolitics, 
right? Probably shouldn't worry about the fact that Dak Prescott might experience a serious sophomore slump and we're about to trade away Tony Romo. These are real anxieties, people. Some cowboy fans out there saying, preach, right? But if we're not to worry about food and clothing, then certainly we're not to worry about anything else, essentially. I mean, it's, it's that simple, right? Don't worry about this means don't worry about any of it. He says, don't let it be a habitual pattern in your life. Then the next thing is this, and this, is, this I found very helpful. Go down to verse 29. I want you to see this. All right? Actually, the end of verse 28. At the end of verse 28, he says, O you of little faith. Do you see that? He says, O you of little faith. Now, that's, that's not a kind word. That's an indictment. That's Jesus saying you lack faith. You are walking in unbelief rather than in belief. But then he says this after verse 28. O you of little faith. He says, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink. So, okay, back to the basic necessities again. Nor be worried. Okay, now if you notice, if you've got the ESV, that's what we're using. That word worried and anxious are two different words that are used in this passage. And they're two different Greek words, which is why the English translators chose to translate it as anxious above and worried down here. Now here's the interesting thing about this word. This word for worried is essentially a word that conveys an entire metaphor. And the metaphor is that of a ship being tossed to and fro by the waves. So that when they hear this Greek word... The readers, the original readers and the original disciples would have heard <clears throat> in this word the idea that they are like, when they are worrying, they are like a ship that is being tossed back and forth by the winds and the waves. Now here's the really interesting thing, is that phrase, O you of little faith, Jesus only uses it five times in the entire New Testament. In all the Gospels, it's only used five times. Two of those five times are times when Jesus' disciples are out on the water being tossed around by winds and waves and wondering if they're going to make it. And Jesus, remember he wakes up from the bottom of the boat, he's sleeping, he's, Jesus, rescue us, we're perishing. And you would think Jesus would go, yeah, this looks pretty bad. Let me see what I can do about it, right? But Jesus says to them, oh, oh you of little faith. So when he says, oh, you of little faith, and then partners it with this word for not worrying that is a metaphor for being tossed around by the winds and the waves, what is Jesus pulling their attention back to? He's pulling their attention back to this moment when they were on the water, tossed around by winds and waves, or the moment when Peter was out on the water walking to Jesus, looked around, saw the winds and the waves, immediately doubted that he was doing something miraculous, walking on the water, and began to sink, cried out to Jesus, and Jesus rescues him, right? So their attention now is drawn back to these pivotal moments, and what essentially Jesus is saying is to worry, to worry, Right? It's not just the habitual pattern, but it's also, it's also choosing not to believe in God's provision and sovereignty and goodness in the midst of scary circumstances. It's not being frightened by the circumstances. It's what you choose to believe in light of the scary circumstances. So what that means for us is this, is that worry... Worry is something you engage with actively. It doesn't mean that you don't feel the weight of the circumstances around you, but what it does mean is that you choose to press into belief rather than into unbelief. That you choose to believe in God's goodness, his provision, sometimes even in spite of the reality of what it looks like around you, that it doesn't seem like a moment uh, where you're seeing God's goodness on display. Perhaps you feel abandoned in that moment as the disciples did when Jesus is at the bottom of the boat and they're being tossed around and they're thinking, don't you care? 
That's what they accuse him of, right? Where, don't you care? We're going to die. Jesus' response is to say, you are filled with unbelief and you need to be filled with belief because I am greater than the wind and the waves. Do you remember what happened next? Jesus says, peace, be still, and every wave stops. They are on a still body of water, and they marvel, and they marvel. That's what worry is. And the bottom line there is that I, I don't want you, what I want you to understand is that worry is not a sudden emotion, but a willful, ongoing choice about what we choose to believe in the midst of scary circumstances. That's ultimately what I want you to get about what this text is teaching us about worry. Now let's briefly answer a second question, and then let's get to some of the good stuff, the beliefs and the action that helps eradicate worry from our lives. The second question is this, is how does worry keep us from having a, the traveler's mentality we need to follow Jesus, right? So... There, we're in this section of the book of Luke where Jesus is essentially teaching a number of things to say, you know, in order to follow me, in order to build my kingdom, right, which we'll just call following him faithfully, in order to follow me, you're going to need to have a traveler's mentality, a traveler's minimalist mentality. You're going to need to pick up the, the smaller suitcase and know that that's going to be enough for you. And, and everything in this whole section, the, the couple chapters before this, the couple chapters after this, really are just an extension of Jesus teaching that reality. If you're going to travel well with me on the road, then you are going to have to have a traveler's minimalist mentality. And there's something about worry that prevents us from having that minimalist mentality. There's something about worry that makes us want to stockpile things and have more and provide for ourselves and make sure as long as I got this built up over here, I'll be okay. And Jesus is saying that's not the way we're meant to think if we're going to travel well, if we're going to build the kingdom, if we're going to be with him on the road. So, Again, it's somewhat intuitive. We already used the suitcase illustration as an idea of that, right? We're worried that we'll need something that we don't have, and therefore we stockpile goods, and you know, we, we make sure that we're well provided for. And Jesus is not necessarily speaking against the reality of being good stewards of resources and having a savings account and, and making investments. He's not speaking against that. But he is speaking against a mentality that says, I've got to sort of have more and more to protect myself. But let me point out one reason, just one, from verse, verse 31, why worrying prevents us from having the traveler's mentality, minimalist mentality that we need in order to follow him well on the road, right? One reason, verse 31, let's read it again. He says, well, let me start in verse 30, where he says, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your father knows that you need them. So there he's essentially saying, look, worry makes you non-distinct from the rest of the world, right? Everybody worries my followers are supposed to look different because you have a good father who you know knows you have needs and you know he's a great provider, therefore you are to look different. But then in verse 31 he says this, Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Do you see what he's doing there? Now, he's giving us a commandment that if you've been in church a while, you're probably pretty familiar with because you've heard this idea. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Matthew 6 has a parallel version of this whole conversation uh, where there are a few different words, word orders and tweaks uh, when you look at it. But in this Luke version, he's saying, look, seek my kingdom, which again, we're just going to define for today as, right, following Jesus well on the road, extending his rule and his reign, right? That's what the kingdom of God is. We're, wherever Jesus is ruling and reigning, that's where the kingdom of God is present. And there are two places where that 
rule and reign gets extended by us into the world. Number one, into human hearts, and number two, into our society. There are two places where God is always looking to extend his kingdom for us to follow him well, is to, so that he would rule and reign in more hearts and more fully in hearts, and also in society at large. He's always calling us into those kinds of places. Now, when he says, seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added to you, what he's essentially doing is he's pointing out the fact that, that often those things can be in opposition to one another. When we concern ourselves with all these things, we are not concerned first and foremost with what? With the kingdom. And so the simple reality is when we worry, when we worry, one of the reasons worry keeps us from having a traveler's minimalist mentality that allows us to walk well with Jesus on the road is because we have a thing called attention and it's a limited resource, right? Your attention is a limited resource. Do you know that? You can only give your attention to so many things. Like moms, you know this when you've got three kids all yelling for your attention at the same time, right? And they're going, mom, mom, mom. And then this one goes, mom, mom, mom. And then this one's screaming because they need food. And you're like, I got to choose one of you and the other two are getting on the back burner right now, right? We all know that attention is a, is a limited resource. And that's essentially what Jesus is saying here is you have this limited resource called attention. And if you spend it on worrying about whether or not you're going to have enough, then you will not be able to spend it on the things that I want you to be attentive to. You guys follow that? Super simple, right? I mean, he's just saying you have... You only have so much attention. I want it given first to following me well, walking with me on the road. And the more you give in to worry, the more you allow yourself to be steeped in worry, the less you're going to be able to give your attention to the things that matter most. So it's a simple thing. Now here's the deal. We are living in a day and an age where fear seems to be the order of the day. Now let me tell you, one of the reasons I feel like I can know, it's not just because I'm watching the news or listening to people, but we're doing something interesting. I haven't told you guys about this yet, but you're going to hear more about it in the days to come, so consider this an introduction. We have grabbed a number of folks from some key areas in, in our, so areas that we think our society are shaped by, in particular our society around here. Uh, different endeavors that we think are sectors of our society that shape our society. So healthcare, education, law enforcement, the marketplace, and government. We think those five areas in particular really shape life on the West Shore and life really in central Pennsylvania. So what we've done is we've gathered people from, from our congregation, from our church, and we've said we want to gather for a conversation, but we want to do something a little different because we believe that God has called us to seek the, seek the good of the West Shore, right? That's our mission for the glory of Christ, seek the good of the West Shore for the glory of Christ. And so we've said... Well, here's one thing evangelicals are known for, by the way. We're evangelicals, in case you didn't know that. Evangelicals are known for talking, not for listening very well. Did you know that? We are known for running our mouths, but not for opening our ears. And so we said, look, we want to make an impact for God's kingdom. We want to seek the good of the West Shore where we live. So what do we need in order to do that? Well, let's not assume that we know what it is that we're supposed to do to do that. Why don't we go on a listening journey first? So we've invited a number of folks who are in all of these different sectors. And what we've asked them to do is to go out and have conversations with their co-laborers, with their co-workers, people who are in healthcare, people who are in education, who don't follow Jesus, people who are in law enforcement or the marketplace or government, and to ask them, what is it that makes your job hard? What are the, what are the challenges you are facing in making the place where we live a better place to live? And we're just listening. And do you know what we're hearing again and again? We're committed to doing this for a good year. 
just listening and hearing what we hear and understanding so that we can identify what it is that God is calling us to really go after and make an impact in in our city. So as we're listening, here's, here's what I can report back to you thus far, several months into listening, is everybody's afraid. Everybody we talk to is deeply afraid, whether it's in healthcare or government or law, wherever it is. People are afraid of the drug epidemic sweeping through central Pennsylvania. People are afraid of the fact that our Cumberland County is the fastest growing county in Pennsylvania. Did you know that? Fastest growing county, and yet we don't have enough uh, well-trained folks to fill the jobs. People in the marketplace are fearful that their businesses are going to go under because they can't find the right kinds of employees. We've got nurses and healthcare workers who are so frazzled and overwhelmed by the influx of people coming into our city and the place where we live that they are turning to taking drugs off the shelf and becoming addicted to prescription painkillers. Just again and again and again, the overwhelming theme, and there's other themes. It's not just all gloom and doom, I promise. But the overwhelming theme, or at least one of them, we hear again and again in all of these conversations is, I'm afraid. I am afraid. Now, let me, give you, let me give you just a little maybe fun assignment. If you'll take me up on it, you can have a little fun assignment. Because one of the things we want to do is extend this listening journey out beyond just this little team of folks that we've gathered to start it. We want to extend this listening journey out to you. What if we as a church became known as the church that listens really well? That'd be a pretty cool thing. One of the things I'd encourage you to do is start having conversations like the ones that the city team is having. To be in conversation with people, your coworkers, your employees, your neighbors, and to say, what's going on in your life? What do you see are the challenges in your work that you're facing that you are having trouble overcoming? Just listen. You don't have to provide any answers. Just listen. We're going to give you an opportunity. It'll probably be an online vehicle that we'll do. But over time, in the months ahead, what we want to do is sort of extend that listening journey out beyond just this small team where you can be listening as well and then reporting back what you're hearing. Because what that's going to do is shape certain initiatives that we're going to make priority for the good of the city-seeking initiatives that we're going to be doing, we hope, for years and years and years to come. It's our journey to, ex- to explore and to listen to God and to listen to others to understand not just what are the problems, but what are the best solutions to those problems and to figure out how an army of people can get behind solving those problems. That's what we're working towards. So now here's why I tell you that story. Here's why I tell you that story. Because if worry is something that distracts us from building the kingdom, then we have got to be intentional. We've got to be intentional about fighting back against worry and against fear that is prevalent all around us. Not just so that we'd be distinct, but so that we can accomplish the mission that God has given us to accomplish. Another thing that's important for you to recognize, a friend of mine that I was just with recently, another pastor says it this way, and I think it's so profound. He lives in a a city that is... um, really in a pretty exceptional way, pretty strongly against the church and against the gospel. Uh, I would say our area is not quite as strongly in that vein, but there's certainly plenty of that. And one of the things that he says, I think he says it really well, he says, friends, you need to understand, he said to me and a couple other pastors, he said, guys, you need to understand that, that people outside the church in general, they don't just think that the church is someone that they disagree with, like they think this way and we think that way and it's okay, we just disagree. They actually think we're bad for the society. They think that what we teach and who we are and the way that we live, they think that who we are is actually bad, not good. Now, 
you need to understand that. That's the perception of the majority of the world about what we accomplish and provide for society. So one of the things he says is, and they say it this way at their church, and maybe we'll just steal this, right? Is he said, so if they think we're bad, then what we have to do is good work in order to build goodwill so that we can tell them good news. Good work, goodwill, good news. I love that. Caught my attention immediately. I said, that's exactly right. We have to do good work to create goodwill so that we can do good news. He told a story, which I thought was phenomenal. They um, were needing something approved by the city council. I don't even remember what. And they had two members of the city council arguing back and forth about whether or not they should approve this thing for their church. One saying, they're evangelicals. We don't like evangelicals. We've got to not approve this thing. And then the other guy going, no, they're not evangelicals. They help everybody. That's an indictment. They're not, they can't be evangelicals. They help everybody. Don't you know how good they are for our city? Whenever there's a need, they're the first ones there. Whenever there's someone who is in need, they are the first ones there. They do more good in this city than anybody else. We absolutely have to. And he goes, no, but don't you understand that? He said, I, they can't be evangelicals. He said, I'm pretty sure it's in their denomination's name. He says, well, whatever they are, they are good for our city. That's the mission we're on. Good work, goodwill, good news. Now, let's get to the, the meat here. How can we overcome worry? Okay, friends, how can we overcome worry? These are simple ideas, right? How do beliefs get entrenched in our lives? Because these are five beliefs that essentially you already know. You already know these things. I'm not going to tell you anything. Jesus does not highlight anything here, if you've been in church a while, that you have probably not had highlighted before. So the question is, how do beliefs get entrenched in our lives? Well, they get entrenched by repeating them over and over and over, and they get entrenched by surrounding ourselves and living our lives alongside of other people who will help us to believe those things, right? So when you go to life group this week, what we want you to do is to have this discussion on what is creating fear and worry and anxiety, and just really even as George was saying, we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another as a way of encouraging one another to stay in the fight and stay in the race. We do that when we gather around God's word together and study it together and, and look together at our lives and try and apply it together. Beliefs become entrenched in our lives, not just by sort of repeating them as a mantra, but by again and again having the people of God remind us what is true about God. Okay, somebody say amen to that. Awesome. Got a call for my own amens, but it's okay. I don't mind. All right, here's the first one. These are going to be in verses 23 through 29 and then again in 32 and 34. The first thing is this, the first belief. Flourishing is not about having things. You know that, right? Human flourishing, flourishing in your life is not about having things. Look at how Jesus says it in verse 29 when he says this. I'm sorry, verse 23. He says in verse 23, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. What's he saying? He's essentially saying there is more, not just there's more to life. He's saying the most important things of life, the things that cause you to flourish, those are not the things that you, uh, that is, those are not the things of having stuff, 
right? Just having, now food and clothing, obviously, those are necessities. God says later, he knows you need those things. He'll provide those things. But we become so overwhelmed, so concerned with collecting things that we forget that life and flourishing has way less to do about things. I mean, really, honestly, you can have all the stuff in the world and you can be completely non-flourishing in life. Unsatisfied, unhealthy, completely just overwhelmed. And you can have very little and you can flourish. Flourishing is not about having things. That's something we have to reinforce again and again because what's our natural, our natural disposition is to gravitate towards collecting stuff. It just is for most of us. And, and friends, the Lord is saying, you are, you are doing something that's actually counter to flourishing because flourishing is life on the road with Jesus and a small suitcase. This is flourishing. Getting out on the road, being freed from worry, and going on an adventure with the Lord. Wherever he wants to go, you're ready because this sucker is light and you can move. That's flourishing. Flourishing is not having all of this stuff packed away and trying to lug this sucker wherever God calls you. You know what's going to happen? You're going to get real tired real fast and you're not going anywhere. Throw on the backpack and get out on the road. The second belief that frees us from worry is that God takes great pleasure in making us flourish. God takes great pleasure in making us flourish. Look at verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. How good is that? Because some of us, uh, and let's be honest, okay? Now, I know we're all in church. You're not supposed to say this sort of thing, right? But a lot of us, if we're honest, don't believe that God wants us to flourish. We think that God wants us to sort of like have a really hard life and to struggle with a lot of pain and to, and, and yes, you may have pain, right? You may have difficulty. But some of us are not convinced that God really is for us, that he really is for our flourishing, as he defines flourishing, not as we define it. We get in this mentality that says that I'm not sure God wants to provide the food I need. I'm not sure God wants to provide the clothing that I need. We're not convinced that God is for our flourishing. And look at what he's saying here. Fear not. Fear not. It's the Father's good pleasure. Right? The Father's good pleasure to give. He didn't have to use that word pleasure there. He could have used some other word. He could have said that he will do it. Right? And then you could have thought, well, maybe it's begrudgingly he'll do it. That's not what he said, is it? Jesus said it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. In other words, he gets a kick out of it. He has a blast doing it. He experiences joy in his Father's heart when you receive the kingdom because he wants it to come through you and in you. So you've got to chase away the belief that Jesus doesn't want you to flourish, that God the Father doesn't want you to flourish. He takes great pleasure in it. The third belief that chases away worry is that God has determined that we are very valuable. God has determined that we are very valuable. Did you catch what he was saying about the ravens and about the grass? He did it two different times as if to say, like, this is really important, I want you to get this. So he said, hey, listen, the ravens, by the way, ravens, if you look in Leviticus and the law, these are considered the worst birds in the world. Right? These are, they're unclean, they're nasty. These are birds that, according to Jewish culture, were absolutely, you wanted nothing to do with them. And he says, I feed the ravens. 
I feed the ravens. Why wouldn't I do the same for you? So I clothe the grass with these beautiful things called flowers that are more beautiful than even Solomon, the richest king Israel ever knew. I clothe them with more beauty and splendor. And they're going to be thrown in the fire tomorrow. They're essentially only good for, you know, fuel for the oven. That's what he's saying. And if I am going to treat ravens and grass that way, why would I not treat you that way? And he actually says, are you not of more value than the raven? So what's he trying to teach us? Pretty straightforward, right? You're highly valuable to God. Now, you're not highly valuable because you're smart. You're not highly valuable because you're really great at, at extending God's kingdom, and he really loves that, therefore you're valuable to him. You're not really valuable because you can preach and teach. You're not really valuable because you are good at your job. You're not really valuable because you're a great dad or a great mom. You're not really valuable because you drive a great car. You're not really valuable because you're funny. You're not really valuable because you're athletic. You're not really valuable for any, any value. You're not really valuable for any of those things. Do you know why you're valuable? Because God says so because he made you, and he says so. That's it. And let's just imagine for a moment, who, who determines whether things have value or not? Who gets to say? Who gets to say whether something is valuable? Well, if you create it, then I guess you get to make the call. And so the one who created all things says you are of immense value. If you want worry to be chased out of your life, You have to begin to believe that what Jesus says here is true. You are of immense value, not because of performance, but because he made you. The fourth belief that chases worry out of our life is this. This is counterintuitive. We are not very powerful. Now, you would think that in order to not worry, you need to feel somewhat in control. You been there? grasping for control of those circumstances, trying to make sure it works out. But he says, actually, the key to stop worrying is to believing that you're not very powerful. Look at what he says in verse 25 and verse 26. He says, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Okay, so what's he just said there? He says, worrying doesn't accomplish anything. That's essentially what he's saying. Worrying does nothing. So worry itself doesn't help you accomplish anything. So you might think, okay, well, he's not saying I'm not powerful or capable of doing anything to prevent worry in my life or to chase away worry. He's saying that worry doesn't produce anything. But then look at what he follows it with. So which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Verse 26 now. If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, Why are you anxious about the rest? In other words, what he's saying is you lack power to do anything about your circumstances in any ultimate sense. You're not very powerful. And when you know you're not very powerful, what do you begin to do? You begin to lean on the one who is powerful. He's saying at the end of the day, it's actually the key to unlocking a a freedom from worry is actually knowing that you can't do anything about the circumstances around you in any real significant way. You can't change the face of geopolitics that make you afraid right now, right? You can't ultimately do anything in the sense that God can. And so he says, you need to embrace that you are not powerful enough to do anything about this and lean into me. Now, what's interesting about this illustration is I did the math. If you live for 85 years, do you know how many hours you will have lived? 
I know 85 is arbitrary, all right, but just go with me. 744,600 hours. If I did my math right, 744,600 hours. And Jesus is saying, you can't make it 744,601. That's how unpowerful you are. Now you would think if I've lived over almost, almost 745,000 hours, surely I could do something to get one more hour. I could squeeze another hour out somehow, some way. And Jesus is saying, nope. Can't even do that. Embrace that you lack power. The second, the, the fifth and final is this. We've never provided for ourselves. What he says about the ravens and what he says about the grass, not that they do nothing. He just says, it's not like the raven stops looking for worms, right? But he says, ultimately, the ravens don't, you know, they're not the ones that provide their food for themselves. God provides their food for them. And the flowers, he says, they don't toil or spin, but God clothes them with great splendor, right? I mean, flowers grow, they soak up sun, they photosynthesis, all that kind of good jazz, right? They do things, but they don't ultimately provide for themselves. Now, let me tell you why this is important, because many of us, this has to do with our work, okay? Many of us go to work imagining that we are going to work to provide for ourselves and provide for our family, right? That is not ultimately why you go to work. And as long as that's your mentality about work, you will think that it rests within your power and therefore is your responsibility in an ultimate sense to provide for you and for your family. But when you know that the reason that you go to work is because you are the creation of a God who is a great worker and those who work are displaying his image through their work. When you go to work with that mentality, I work because I was made to work. I was designed to work. Because I am made in the image of a God who created everything. That's a God who works. And who is at work today, now, sustaining the entire universe. If God does not uphold the universe, the universe falls apart. And so God is at work today. All over the world, extending his kingdom, upholding the universe, giving us the very breath that we breathe. We serve a worker God. And because we serve a God who works, we are a people made in his image who work. And I go to work to reflect that image. I go to work to display the image of God and experience the splendor of feeling the image of God on display as I work, not ultimately to make sure I've got bread on the table for my family. And when that's your perspective on work, it changes everything about how you go to work, the way you do your work, the way you think about your work. And you no longer worry, like, what if I don't do my work well enough? I might get fired. You say, I'm here to extend the image of God as someone who works, whatever your industry is, if you're in finance or if you're in janitorial services or if you're a teacher, whatever it is, you work and display the image of God in that work. Those are five beliefs you need to chase away worry. And the last thing he gives us to chase away worry is one action, and it's this, so simple. Be generous. Be generous. When you hold on to stuff, get this, we all want to be free from worry, so we stockpile stuff as if that's going to make us feel better. And what he's saying is the more stuff you have, the more worry you will have. The less stuff you have, the less worry you will have. Because look at what he says in verse 32. Fear not, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. When you are generous, you are building your eternal 401k. It's a 401k that no market dip can harm. 
no housing bubble can touch. It is a 401k that will pay eternal dividends forever. That's redundant, eternal and forever, right? You get the point. And he says, look, if you, if you want to be free from worry, you want to seek first the kingdom, be generous. Now, here's the beauty of that. Because often we think that we're generous because it's in our heart to be generous. But what does he say? Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. There's a cyclical nature between faith and works, right? When I have faith, then I do good works. And those good works, what do they do? They build my faith. And so he's speaking to the backside of that cycle. He's saying when you place the things that you hold valuable, your time, your money, your energy, when you, those things that you count a treasure, when you place them, use them for good works, they will build your faith. They will strip away your worry. So actions, not to be behaviorists here, that we're not just about actions, but those actions will, will bring about belief. They'll bring you out of unbelief and into belief. They help aid that. And then that faith cycles back to creating good works, and good works cycles back to creating more faith. You guys follow that? Pretty simple cycle, right? Friends, there is a life free from worry. It's waiting for you out on the road with a small suitcase following the footprints of Jesus. It's yours for the taking. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We delight in you. Jesus, we love you and we delight in you. We pray that you would teach us how to pick up our small suitcases to get out on the road. Just pray, Lord, that you would examine us. It's ultimately, it's no human's work. It's your work to come in and examine us and to show us what we need, what we don't need. Free us from fear and worry so that we might be a distinct people in this city. Lord Jesus, we pray it in your name. Amen. Why don't you stand? Let's sing It Is Well together. It's a good way to close our time together.